Welcome to the Oil Can Podcast. This is going to be a very special, fun time. Uh, it's Alan Mitchell and Jonathan Willis joining me from way up north. How's the weather up there, John? Oh, it's a balmy minus 50. No, it's 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 lovely. It's a little bit rainy, but uh, you know what? Summertime rain, I'll, I'll take that any day. I agree with you. The, everything gets nice and green and the flowers come out and... Uh, it's not good for our for our guest because he likes to see the sun and the moon and the stars, but they'll they'll come back soon. Uh, Bruce McCurdy from the Cult of Hockey at the Edmonton Journal, uh, a no-brainer for us, one of our uh, favorite people and favorite people to read. Bruce, welcome to the show. Why, thank you, Alan. Hello, Jonathan. It's uh, good to good to talk to you, Bruce. This this feels like a a comment section in the old Low Tide blog, circa two thousand eight or something. <laughs> Well, I mean, John, you and I worked together on the Copper and Blue, and then later we worked on the Cult of Hockey, and you and Alan worked together on uh, Oilers Nation and now on The Athletic. <laughs> and I've never worked directly with Alan other than being a guest on his radio show many times over the years, but uh, I think we are all, uh, uh, we can classify each other as good friends for sure. I agree with that totally. Well, I'll jump. I'll jump uh, in and say you're you're not missing anything working directly with Alan. The the emails day and night, the phone calls. He's merciless. Uh huh. <laughs> That's all true. <laughs> every word. Every word is true. Um, Bruce, let's start here. Uh, Darren Dreger tweeted out earlier today uh, in regard to the NHL and the Oilers as being a, a hub city. He said, curious what NHL players think about Edmonton rolling out in a lifestyle presentation, secured golf course, cool temperatures, outdoor big screens for movies and other games, some stuff planned more tonight on the insider trading, which is great. But, but your thoughts on maybe, uh, ratcheting this thing up and giving these players who are going to have a, a perceived tough time in isolation, giving them a few options in terms of entertainment. Uh, does that help, or do you think this is just window dressing? Well, mostly it's window dressing. I mean, the whole point about all of this is uh, is to play the games and keep things as locked down and uh, 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 under wraps as possible. So, uh, I mean, ideally, you do add a, you know you do add a few frills uh, specific to the players, and you do it within a a safety first um, consciousness and it sounds like that's what they're uh, uh, they're trying to put together uh, find some golf course that uh, uh, they'll restrict access to and uh, which might not sit too well with members of said golf course but on the other <laughs> hand uh, it's, it's it's a it's a uh, um, you know they're putting a package together as I guess they should if they really want to host the, uh, uh, host this event uh, I, I guess the advantages are mostly of the economic type as opposed to home team advantage. In fact, some of the scenarios I hear have the home teams sent away to the other city just to keep it fair, even as home team advantage as we know it usually involves fans. So I don't see what the what the big deal is about that. Well, I, I've... I kind of am interested to know what the economic benefit for the city of Edmonton would be of, of hosting the teams. Like, obviously, there's there's a hotel, there's some incidentals, and it's a fairly large group of people. But, um, you know, if, if they're not playing in front of fans, and especially if the Oilers are playing in wherever the other hub city seems to be, oh. it looks to me like most of the benefits are on the NHL side. I mean, the NHL gets to host somewhere where there's a Canadian dollar. And, you know, if you compare it to somewhere like Vegas, I think the average high in Edmonton in June is about 23 degrees as opposed to 40 degrees centigrade um, right. in Nevada. So it to me, it, it looks to me like the, the league really benefits from it. But I'm not sure that I see the, the case that Edmonton's getting, you know, a huge deal versus if it was held in some other city. 
Yeah, I mean, as a hockey fan, I mean, it's a perfect world that you have, you know, potentially 12 teams playing a whole big, long series of games right in your city. But, I mean, I'm only going to be watching them on TV anyway, right? I mean, they might as well be playing them in Vegas or, or, or on the moon, you know, <laughs> in, in the sense of of uh, what the fan experience will be. There'll be very little interaction. That's kind of the point. Uh, the business with the restaurants and the hospitality industries, that is no small thing. And uh, the hospitality uh, um, industry as a whole has just been getting hammered yeah. by uh, COVID. Uh, and anything that involves, you know, it would be a substantial number of people uh, associated with the teams, the league, and all the, you know, the, all the various um, uh, other elements, you know, the TV crews and, and uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the minor partners and, the, you know, the officials and the, and the minor scores and all that sort of thing. You know, you add those all up and... It's a goodly number. I mean, I had a conversation with Steve Lansky, a uh, uh, former Hockey Night in Canada producer that's uh, one of Alan's regular guests on his show, uh, and suggesting that for a, a typical game involving two teams, by the time you count TV and all the other people, equipment managers, everybody, you'd be on the order of 200 people involved for two teams. <laughs> and obviously for 12, it wouldn't be 1,200 because there'd be uh, certain redundancies. You wouldn't need a, a new TV crew for each team, but it would be substantially more than 200. And, you know, that's a, that's a significant uh, uh, influx of people. Uh, big concern, obviously, uh, with COVID is the fact that much of the transmission of the uh, virus has come by, by way of traveling people and having in, incoming people from many different jurisdictions is uh, you know something they they would have to be very careful about but it sounds like they're taking uh, they're taking those precautions uh, but uh, what what the advantages are I think from Edmonton's perspective is maybe uh, uh, a chance to, to you know to sell this to the city a little bit and I, I know just from reading the responses to Darren Drager's uh, tweet, uh, a whole lot of people who apparently have never been here calling Edmonton, uh, you know, a, 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 a lousy destination, a crummy city, in other words that I won't even use on a fine family podcast uh, <laughs> about what Edmonton is. And I, I'm thinking, gee, they obviously don't even know the city to be making some of these comments because there, there are lots of... Uh, of charms to this city, and especially in the summer months. I mean, some of the some of the complaints uh, players typically have about Edmonton being cold. Well, they come here in January, not necessarily June and July. So, uh, it would be a very different look for uh, for Edmonton. The proposed twenty four team um, system that they have, uh, Western Conference would see five play twelve. That's Edmonton and Chicago. Uh, the top four teams. I di I dislike this. I'll tell you honestly. It should, I feel like it should be the top eight teams in every uh, yep. conference, and you just go play. Uh, your thoughts on on how this um, fell out? What the what the solution has been, and uh, why the line seems to have been drawn once again between Edmonton and then everybody else and the Oilers play uh, in an early round as opposed to getting what would look like a bye. Yeah. If you went by the original proposal of four hub cities, it would be pretty obvious that they would split them by divisions, uh, division uh, to division. 
And clearly, uh, even if you went six six per uh, uh, per place for the twenty four team arrangement, uh, that surely would feature uh, because the three California teams have basically fallen into the ocean uh, after years of dominating the <laughs> Pacific. Uh, you would probably need a wild card team, presumably Chicago, sliding over into the Pacific to uh, to join the five legitimate uh, strong teams in the Pacific. Uh, Edmonton ranks second in the Pacific, and if you had a, a, divi- a strict divisional uh, playoff like what they've been running them past number of years, um, and you suddenly went from four to six teams in the Pacific, well, first and second would get the buys. And then three would play six and four would play five. If all of a sudden you say, well, because there's 12 teams in one place, we're going to automatically switch from the divisional structure that we've had for all these years and call it a conference structure. And then we're going to rate by, not by points, but by points uh, percentage. And guess what? Edmonton, oh, poor Edmonton. Now you're in fifth instead of fourth. And we got four American teams uh, getting the buys and then, uh, Edmonton, your reward for finishing second in the Pacific Division is you get to play a best of three round with with no fans, and you know, good luck with that. And if you lose a couple games, bye, and all that season <laughs> seems to be over in a hurry. Uh, if I were Edmonton, I'd be I'd be making a case very strongly that top two in each division get the bye, and into the best of seven rounds that follow, and then you're, you know, you're on a little bit more solid footing as opposed to need to qualify for the quarterfinals, uh, you know, you would, by this method, the, the the eight teams that would have started the playoffs on home ice are the eight play teams that get the bye. Let's say, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that there's a bit of a, a chasm between how the NHL would have run its playoff format had there been, had the regular season concluded as scheduled and, and the way they appear to be set up with this, this format. Um, I want to switch gears. I, I also want to thank you for very diplomatically uh, correcting me on, on the, the financial benefits for Edmonton. But I, I want to switch gears to the actual hockey team here. Uh, one one of the um, the big issues coming up this off season is the fate of of Yesse Puljujarvi. Now, now personally, I think there's a lot of situations where ideally he'd come back to Edmonton. I don't know that that's practical. I don't know that that's at all manageable. Obviously, the player has the most say in this. But, you know, you could use a young winger on this team, a guy who could step in and play a middle six role immediately. But assuming that's impossible, if you were responsible for shopping him around the league, what kind of trade return would you be looking for? Uh, I'd be angling for a first-round pick. Uh, by definition, it would be late in the first round, I think. Uh, you're not going to turn a, a fourth-round pick or a fourth-overall pick into uh two high draft picks uh, unless Peter Shirelli is around and willing to make a trade. <laughs> but uh, you have, um, uh, I think, a player with a lot of value that, that, that improved his value with a strong season in, in, the, in the Finnish league, uh, who by all reports has recovered his, uh, uh, his self-confidence and his joie de vivre, which was a really part of his, uh, his whole persona when he was coming up with Finland, was his obvious love of of life and of playing the game. Uh, as you say, ideally, 
he would come back to Edmonton. But the fact that a new GM and coach team came in and tried to convince him to come back and he wouldn't suggest that maybe the divide is not with management, but somehow within the team level that there's a some kind of issue within potentially the locker room. And I, I have no insight on this. I'm just speculating based on I thought Ken Holland's going to come in. He's going to talk to Paul Arby and his agent. He's going to say, look, we've got a new coach in Dave Tippett, Green Slate. Come on back. We'll give you one year, and then we'll take it from there. And it just didn't wash. So there's there's more to this uh, to this background than we know. Uh, that would be a best-case scenario. Uh, I don't mind the idea of, and we've been hashing this around a little bit, especially with all this, uh, what I think is foolish talk about the NHL holding the draft before the playoffs. Uh, of the extreme limitations there would be in tr- on trades in the draft of playoff teams not wanting to trade away players before the playoffs, go figure. Uh, and uh, Yarby thus having a, a, a relatively um, uh, high place of, of available players who could be traded uh, uh, to teams that have a plethora of draft picks. Yes, and here we have, uh, I think, Montreal with fourteen picks, and Ottawa with seven picks in the first two rounds. Well, if those teams just exercise all those draft picks, for one thing, they're waiting years for any of these guys to come along. For another, uh, the, these guys are going to be competing for spots within the organization. Uh, you know, they're going to have uh, too many guys coming into their minor league program at the same time, potentially unless they, you know, work around by picking Europeans and college players and, and deliberately plotting for that. Whereas to a team like Ottawa, uh, trading of, say, the number 21 overall draft pick or a, even a couple of second rounders for a 22-year-old guy who's got uh, uh, over 100 games in the NHL, is coming off a strong year in the Finnish League, you know, has, has uh, uh, excellent bona fides in terms of his past uh, you know, draft pedigree and so on, that would be very, very attractive. And ditto for Montreal. You know, all those draft picks are years away, whereas they could trade a couple of them and bring in a guy who's ready to play next year. Bruce, you know, Paul Yarby's so interesting. I I, uh, I like him as a player, and I, I, I still think he would be, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but he'd be a really nice addition to the team the, the Oilers have now. Um, Bob Stoffer, who's a friend of the show, uh, he has uh, often mentioned a few names, Leah Sanderson uh, of the New York Rangers, one of them. Uh, but he's mentioned a couple of times recently Casey, Casey Middlestadt of the Buffalo Sabres. And I, I'm always hesitant, just as a, an observer, to, to look at, you know, we'll, we'll trade you our failed prospect for your failed prospect. Is that you do get the advantage of not having to wait the couple of years, but if it comes down to middle stat or a pick uh, from twenty-five to forty, uh, what's your opinion? Would you would you rather see the player uh, come in and try to compete, or do you feel like you're depending upon the year? I understand, but would you would you like to to have to be patient uh, and take that player in the in the later part of the first round or early part of the second? Yeah, I guess the question is if that is. The player you're going to take 25 to 40, that's three years away, uh, is the guy that you're getting back, uh, as in your example, Middlestad, uh, that same player but 21 years old and not 18 years old and not much closer to being able to help your team, which is certainly the case you can make for Jesse Pogliarvi himself. Uh, I look at these guys and I, you know, and I see flaws. And of course, being an Oilers fan, I look at Pogliarvi and I see all the positives. Uh, but I mean, uh, Middlestad 
uh, this year as a 21-year-old. Uh, yeah, he's going to be he's going to be 22 in November. Uh, he played in Buffalo. He got nine points in 31 games, and then he was in Rochester, 25 points in 36 games. Well, that's the same kind of production that Yasin Pugliarvi had in Bakersfield as an 18-year-old. Uh, moreover, minus 15 in Rochester, which, uh, I mean, we know that, that that stat is not to be trusted, but uh, it's not a good sign when you're getting outscored, uh, when you're supposedly a, a, a higher-quality player playing in, in, a, in a minor league. Uh this is where obviously um, having a good scouting staff and 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 firsthand knowledge of the player through other means is probably going to say more than what you and I can pull off of elite prospects by by looking at the at the raw numbers. But uh, uh, Middlestat was uh, a hugely um, uh, hyped prospect, and he went uh, eighth overall. So he you know he's in the Pulleyarvi range of going in the top ten of the draft. He had a, a huge world junior of his own uh, in 2018. Uh, mind you, he was a 19-year-old then, whereas Pugliarvi won the MVP award as a 17-year-old. Uh, and there was expectation that Middlestad was going to be the next big thing. And for whatever reason in Buffalo, it just hasn't worked yet. Well, one, one of the things with Middlestad that I look at is like his 2019-20 season is not that dissimilar to me, from Pugliarvi's 2018-19 season. Um, like, I, th- I think it's in the range. I, I don't know that he really excites me, but then if I'm uh, Jason Botterill, I don't know that Jesse Pugliarvi really excites me either. <laughs> uh, the fact that Middlestat, you know, I don't know if he's going to be a center or a winger at the NHL level, uh, Like, but, but the fact that he could potentially um, transition to, to be in a center is, you know, maybe another... Uh, another mark in his favor. I wonder if um, maybe maybe to tie this into something that that Alan Mitchell wrote about uh, not that long ago. If maybe there's there's not a fit for somebody who's going to be a little more expensive for a team that's that's fighting with the salary cap. So you know if you're say the Boston Bruins and and you want to uh, to get Tory Krug resigned as a free agent, do you do you maybe look at at moving somebody who's going to be a little bit pricier for a PRV? If you're the New York Rangers, I, I don't like Alan mentioned Ryan Strom. I don't think that's that's in the range of what the Rangers would think of doing. But but is there maybe a fit there where the Oilers? I, I know they're in their own salary cap issues. Um, could trade play RV for somebody who's going to be a little bit pricier? Do do you think they have the room to do that? So you, are you thinking Jake DeBrusque or what are you thinking well, about coming? Well, yeah, it, I, I know it's a little bit vague. Uh, DeBrusque was who Alan mentioned, and I, and I love DeBrusque personally. I wouldn't touch that if I was Boston. I, I wouldn't right. take Pulley Harvey for DeBrusque, but but that that well, is no. hypothetically no. the sort of situation. Like if you're you're getting a guy who's going to make say three million bucks back from a team that's that's pinching pennies. Hmm. Well. Uh, in theory, that works well. In, in practice, the Oilers are uh, are going to have to pinch some pennies of their own in terms <laughs> of finding uh, uh, co- finding uh, value contracts that that, uh, that chip in. I mean, potentially pull the RV. And I understand that uh, uh, that his uh, uh, his agent um, is um, uh, Billy Leno. Is it uh, Marcus Leto? Marcus Leto. Marcus Leto. Leto. Plato. Okay, I'm thinking Jay Leno, and I know I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Marcus Leto. My, my understanding is they're they're saying that 
they're not expecting a huge salary wherever they go that they're, you know, they're, they're willing to, uh, you know, get a one year thing to get things started. Now uh, I'm, that may be two or three times removed from source, although I don't know how valuable it is, but I'm not sure Pugliarvi's in a bargaining position that he can be asking for, you know, big seven figure contracts at this point. Uh, he's got to, he has to prove himself before, before next. And again, to me, that's, that, that sounds like Gene Melnick territory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> forgot about salary cap. You just talk about actual dollars. And uh, yeah, anyways, um, uh, he's uh, uh, the, the one deal that's kind of been going around the uh, doing the rounds lately is um, Leah Sanderson. That's name keeps coming up, keeps coming up. And most people seem to agree that Anderson for Pugliarvi straight up is a loss for the Oilers. But the latest suggestion is that the Oilers would throw in a prospect and New York would throw in their late first round pick. Or their, I think they have two picks in the first round and the, the later one. And that certainly sounds a little bit more doable, obviously, depending on who the prospect is. I mean, if it's Evan Bouchard, obviously, that's a non-starter. It's Dmitry Samorakov. That's a big uh, sort of take a deep breath and think about that one. If it's William Lagesson, then maybe you're saying, okay, maybe there's a fit here. We do have a lot of defensemen, and and uh, uh, there's not, you know, he's ready to be an NHLer, and we've already got two young guys that we think are ahead of him. So let's move him and get somehow nab that first round pick and get Leah Sanderson as a, you know. A prospect in the system and a two for two. I mean, most of the deals we hear proposed are one for ones. And so that one where some you mix and match and find a couple of assets each way that that balances out is a, is another way to go. Uh, Bruce, when we're talking about uh, uh, 2021 season coming up, um, we, we talked about the the possibility of, of adding some help up front, pull your RV. Uh, John wrote an article on uh, goaltending a couple of them as a matter of fact and really dug deep on ken holland as general manager but also uh what the oilers need and he had a a, a great group of of options mike smith obviously being the obvious one and i think we mostly agree that's that's going to be it uh likely but he mentioned jimmy howard yep. and and you know howard's the guy i wouldn't have thought of i would thought well you know he's had a poor year yep. but John mentioned his his even strength numbers for like eight years in a row, mm-hmm. uh, and he's an older player. But Holland doesn't have a problem with that. If you look at his even strength save percentages for a long time now, he's been a pretty consistent goaltender, and he does fit with Holland's preferences. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And 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 you know, on goaltending in general, Koskinen and whomever, with maybe Howard as a as a, an example. Well, uh, we could always keep Mike Smith and Jimmy Howard and move out from Koskinen, and that would solve anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, Howard is, he, he's a real wild card because as you say, Ken Holland does know the guy. Uh, he does trust him. He is coming off a miserable year with a miserable team in Detroit and, and uh, which is chicken and which is egg is, is a good question. Uh, but one of the stats they keep on the advanced, uh, goalie page at nhl.com is percentage of starts uh, over 900 save percentage 
And in Jimmy Howard's case, he started 27 games this year, and he was over 900 exactly seven times. It was barely 25%. He was 52nd out of the 52 netminders that played 25-plus games. Uh, and that, mind you, Mike Smith wasn't far above that, uh, but Mike Smith did have a season with a couple of decent runs in it. Uh, I think generally we're going to see this this year especially, in fact, this year extraordinarily so, uh, a whole lot of players staying put where they are. A lot of one-year contracts, uh, a lot of teams saying, well, gee, Mike, you're the only guy we can talk to at this point, and we don't even know when the season's going to be over and how long the window is going to be to get another goalie in here. And we're, you know, we're we're kind of happy with the job that you did, and we're, you know, and uh, how about we do one more year under similar terms as what we had this past year? It worked out okay this past year. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. It's sort of better the devil you know, uh, or the bird in hand versus the ones in the bush that we don't know when the bush is going to be, let alone what birds are going to be in it. Uh, I, so I think you're, just because of the more extended negotiating period that's going to go way past June 30th, and the short and free agent period, I, th- I think you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of internal renewals of more than usual. And I think uh, Mike Smith, uh, he that makes him a, a leading favorite to uh, to retain the job for one year. It's uh, it's certainly an, an interesting off season in in that regard. Uh, not not so much for Mike Smith, but I, I think one of the other things we'll see too is because we're a year away from expansion. And it's going to be necessary to have guys under contract uh, for expansion purposes. I wonder if a lot of those internal contracts we see are, are two-year terms. And I'm bringing this up specifically in reference to a guy you just wrote about who's in a very interesting situation in Edmonton. Um, Alan Mitchell's very favorite defenseman in the entire world, Matt Benning. Uh, <laughs> so, so I look at Matt Benning and I see a $1.9 million qualifying offer and I see all those other bodies on Edmonton's blue line. And I think to myself, you know, the minutes he's playing, I'd be pretty happy to have him back at one and a quarter, 1.3. Um, I, I don't think I'd qualify him. And I wonder if the way around that is a two-year deal and you have him slotted as sort of a six seven defenseman i i don't know that that's the optimal choice because obviously there are, there are a ton of bodies including evan bouchard including mike green that, that are in the mix what i'm curious about and i know you're a fan of the player is how you would handle him this summer um given the difficulty in qualifying him like would you qualify him would you try and do a longer term deal what, what would you do yeah, well, you bring up the the big bugaboo is his contract, and I mean, he was signed out of um, uh, was it Northeastern University, right out of the Boston system. He was drafted by Shirelli. Boston couldn't sign him, uh, and the Oilers went and grabbed him. And he played two games in the AHL, and he was already in the NHL as a nice contributor as a rookie in 2016-17 on uh, what was a pretty good third pairing for Edmonton that year with Darnell Nurse, uh, certainly for, for much of the year. And he, he followed that up with another pretty good season. And then Chirelli came ladling out the, uh, the big raise. And the minute he signed that two-year pact at $1.9 million, uh, he basically went from being the hunter to being the hunted. 
<laughs> and in in the in the uh, cap world, it's all about marginal value against the cap. And a guy yes. can be a good player, but a good player at one million, the same player against two million, and all of a sudden the value has largely dissipated, or maybe even entirely dissipated. And if Benning's platform value was around where you say 1.2, 1.3, even 1.5 million, I think it's a no-brainer to qualify him. And I mean, the player has arbitration rights, but his case is only so-so. You know, he's missed, he's missed time. He's, uh, uh, he's, um, uh, you know, he's he's well established as a third-pairing defenseman. Uh, that said, he's had great results. Uh, you know, when you when you actually look at uh, at um, goals scored when he's on the ice, and he's almost always out there five on five. He doesn't do much special teams. He doesn't do much in you know goalie out scenarios either way. So his plus minus is real, and every year it's a plus. And over his time in Edmonton, he's outscored um, uh, Elite opponents, uh, middling opponents, uh, lower level opponents. This is joined due to the uh, the levels established by PuckIQ.com. Uh, he's outscored opposition playing with Drysaddle, with McDavid, without either of them on the ice. He's been an outscorer. The Oilers have been an outscorer with him being one of the twelve players on the ice. Some of that's maybe luck. I mean, the shooting percentage is a little higher than the other team's shooting percentage every year. There's a little edge there. How much of that is due to what Matt Benning has done and uh, how much of it is is other factors. Uh, he's got a lot going on. That said, his role has gradually diminished. And this year under Dave Tippett, he had career lows in uh, average ice time, average power play time, average um, penalty kill time, average time against elites. All of those things were diminished this year under, uh, uh, under Tippett. Uh, also, he was given fewer face-off responsibilities where he was chosen to match up against certain opponents. He was doing more more of his shifts came on the fly. And all of those things point to um, trust from the coach. And in my review of Ethan Bear, I was astonished by how much trust the coach had in a rookie player. In the case of Matt Benning, I was not quite astonished because, of course, I watched the season, but uh, it some of the arrows are pointing to the to the idea that uh, um, Tippett maybe doesn't trust uh, Matt Benning to the degree that, say, Todd McClellan did. So that may be an indicator. Uh, so he's uh, he is uh, a very interesting case. And just uh, a final note: uh, his qualifying platform offer is actually two million because his two-year deal was one point eight for the first year and two million for the second year. And that establishes the the QO. So he's a flat two million. Maybe if you're um, Ken Holland, do you go to him and say, "We want you back, Matt, but we can't afford two million. Uh, we'll give you one point five for two years. Think about it." Or is that something that's just a non-starter? I mean, most of these guys, once their salary starts going up, it just keeps going up as they gain experience in the league. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and I think that the the you know there's there's so much involved. John mentioned Mike Green as a possibility that Ethan Bear contract is going to be 
you know, dollars out as well, probably shorter term. Speaking of defensemen who get paid well, Jared Spurgeon of the Minnesota Wild is Michael Russo's guest on Straight from the Source this week at The Athletic. Uh, kind of to wrap up, I'm going to ask both of you guys this question because it's curious to me. I see Evan Bouchard as a guy who under almost every other management slash coaching uh, group since the WHA days would be panned into uh, the starting lineup of the NHL team in the fall of 2020 or whenever we get this thing started. With this group, with Ken Holland as GM, uh, with Dave Tippett as coach, and with the options that they have, Green, Benning, Larson, Bear, I think it's more than 50% that Bouchard goes back to the AHL, which I can't believe I'm saying, but Bruce, maybe I can ask you first and then John, your opinion on that. Sure. Uh, I do think it's the MO of uh, Ken Holland. And I, it's more the case that he he's not going to, like, I don't see him letting go both Matt Green. Matt Benning and Mike Green and saying, okay, Evan, the third right defense job is yours. No ifs, ands, or buts. We're expecting you to to slide in there and and run with it. Uh, I'm sure they're going to keep one of those veterans. And the scenario where you start the season with veterans and then reevaluate as the season goes along. I mean, we saw that exact thing in 2019-20 with Kyler Yamamoto where uh, uh, Holland brought in so many 26- and 27-year-old veterans from the NHL, from the AHL, from Switzerland and Sweden, and they all got a look. They all got 30 games, except for Thomas Yurcho, who had an injury. Uh, They all got over 30 games, and it was only after Christmas that the decision was made. Okay, Marcus Granlund, sorry, you didn't make the grade this is the time we're going to bring up Kyler Yamamoto. And it was a real, you know, a turning point in the Oilers' entire season. And some would argue that Yamamoto was held back and should have been brought up earlier. I'm just saying this is Ken Holland's MO that we've seen in Edmonton. And, of course, we have the 22-year history of what he did in Detroit. And so many guys played two, two and a half years in Grand Rapids before they ever really got their their feet under them as full-time Red Wings. And some of those guys were first-round picks like Evan Bouchard that it wouldn't be the worst scenario to start with a deep defense, wait for something to happen, and then bring him up to uh, to fill a role, you know, be it an injury or, or performance issue or him just being so good at the minor league level that, that, that he forces the, the decision. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that he starts the year in, uh, in Bakersfield, assuming there even is an AHL and a Bakersfield in 2020-21, because that's a whole nother, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's so many questions hanging over society and, and professional sports right now that we, we talk about normal situations, and this quite simply isn't one, so. There's there's so much in what Bruce just said that I, I want to hit on, and it, it makes me sad that we're right approaching the end of our time. Um, I, I I feel bizarre because I've been I've been writing about the Oilers since 2008 and and hanging out uh, in the online um, for longer than that. Yes, and, and Bruce as well. Uh, we're, we we all go back uh, to to low tide site way back in the day, um, and this is but this is the first time where there's been a GM where I look at him and I go you know, maybe you could be a little more aggressive with that prospect because for years I've been screaming, look at what Ken Holland's doing in Detroit. Why can't you guys be patient like the Red Wings? Um, 
Uh, Bruce's point about Yamamoto is a good one. I, I think the thing with Yamamoto was because he was coming off injury and he wasn't a hundred, like he didn't really get a yeah. shot in camp because he was hurt. Right. It's, it's a different situation. So you can't like, if you could get the January version of Kyler Yamamoto on this Oilers roster in October, maybe the Oilers are uh, going into a playoff series where they have a buy in the first round in this 24 team setup because you know, they're, they're that much better. Um, and, and I worry about that with Bouchard because to me, there's very, very little question that Bouchard is ready to contribute an NHL level. I don't doubt for a second he'd be an upgrade, uh, certainly on the power play. Um, but what I keep coming back to with him is something that uh, another friend of the show here, uh, Darcy McLeod, has pointed out repeatedly, which is that the guys on the right side in Edmonton have a bit of a penchant for getting injured. So Adam Larson, to me, looked fully healthy for the first time in ages in the back half of this year, and I think we saw that in the results. Um, I, I don't know if the back problems we've had reported over the past few seasons have been the issue there or not. I, I look at a guy like Ethan Bear. Part of the reason Bear was such a surprise this year was that a year ago, he struggled through injury at the American League level, and it really hampered his ability to to make an impression. And then you look at Matt Benning, the concussion concerns. You look at Mike Green. Green has not, you know, he's at an age where you have to worry about injuries anyway. And, and suddenly all four of the options that we're talking about sliding into three spots are guys you have to worry a little bit about. So, because that's the situation Edmonton's in, and I don't trust any of those guys to be fully healthy for a full season, I'm I'm pretty okay with the idea of starting Bouchard in the minors. Whereas, you know, if if even one of those guys I felt really, really confident in in playing an 82-game campaign, I'd say, no, Bouchard's ready, bring him up. But because there's that in issue, I uh, yeah, I, I look at it and I go, I, I, I'm okay with a conservative approach here. Bear had four different injuries in 2018-19 that caused him to miss time, uh, including in the playoffs uh, with Bakersfield, which is one of the reasons he was under the radar. I know in our Cult of Hockey Prospects series, uh, he dropped from number four to number nine among our prospects, and he had six defensemen ahead of him, uh, (laughs) as we rated it. And yet he was the one, I mean, that was close. And he was the one that, uh, that beat the odds and just just hit the ground running. Uh, and that was a case of Ken Holland actually uh, giving, uh, opening up a spot on defense by buying out Andre Sekera and breaking up the six-pack of defensemen that the Oilers had had for the previous three years running. So he actually did make room for, you know, but not for a 19-year-old defenseman, for a 22 to 25-year-old. He gave all those fellows a, a shot at that job. And in fact, this year in, uh, in Edmonton, uh, was only the second time in the decade that the Oilers didn't have a teenager on the team to start the year. And only did they not have a teenager, they didn't have a 20 or a 21-year-old until they called up uh, Kyler Yamamoto. They, they really went with a more veteran group, and I think that tells us, too, a little bit about the mindset of Ken Hall. Mm-hmm. Bruce McCurdy from the Cult of Hockey at the Edmonton Journal. Thank you so much. John Willis, uh, this is like a... Uh, a cup of coffee with friends and ordinarily I walk out before this time because the bill would have arrived <laughs> I enjoyed lingering uh, right till the end uh, check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app don't forget to rate and subscribe the oil can on Apple if you click on the show URL which is theathletic.com slash the oil can you get 40% off your subscription thanks so much for tuning into the oil can 